It seems the first message may have been lost in translation. The lead starts right now. President Biden vows to deliver his message again to Vladimir Putin after another cyber attack, possibly with ties to Russia. A so-called Bible study group looking into bombs. The terrifying details about how a man prosecutors say was at the Capitol attack was planning even more violence. Plus a dramatic jump in the Surfside death toll as the Miami-Dade mayor tearfully delivers heartbreaking news about the people who are still missing. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper today. And we start with the tech lead and a new alarming cyber attack. This one closely linked to the Republican National Committee and possibly a repeat of the 2016 DNC hack with the very same cyber criminals responsible. The RNC told CNN hackers breached one of its third party vendors. And the same time the RNC learned of this hack, another major ransomware attack was playing out. Hackers with possible ties to Russia demanded $70 million worth of Bitcoin from a series of IT companies. Those companies service more than 1,000 corporate and government clients. Both cyber attacks come as the Biden administration faces mounting pressure to deter these kinds of attacks. So let's start with CNN's Alex Markhart. So what more do we know about this attack with links to the RNC, Alex? Well, the RNC uses a company called Synex as an IT provider, and Synex was attacked uh, by hackers who they say tried to access some of their customers who store things uh, in the cloud. Now, it's not clear whether the RNC was the target or others were, um, but the RNC is saying that uh, as soon as they found out that, their, that this company, Synex, the IT provider, had been breached, that they shut down all ties, all accounts with the company. Now, the New York Times is reporting that the hackers behind this are from the Russian SVR, which is their foreign intelligence service. Uh, this is uh, a group of hackers um, that we have seen acting against the U.S. before, most recently in, in the solar winds breach. Uh, but the RNC is saying that absolutely no data was taken, uh, that the hackers did not manage to get inside. We heard from the RNC chief of staff. He said, in part, our team worked with Microsoft to conduct a review of our systems, and after a thorough investigation, no RNC data was accessed. We will continue to work with Microsoft as well as federal law enforcement officials on this matter. Pam, we know from the White House uh, that the RNC is in contact with the FBI and the cyber agency uh, called CISA. But this does come at the same time, as you mentioned, as this massive ransomware attack uh, that has been claimed by the Russian criminal group, Are Evil. Uh, they are demanding $70 million. As you said, they've indicated that they would take a little bit less, and it has affected hundreds, if not thousands, of companies. And so now you have these two incidents essentially in parallel involving Russian hackers, criminal and government. And as you know, that line is often blurry. It's hard to tell where one starts and where one ends and the other starts. Right. And if the RNC was the direct target here, we still don't know that. But if it was, it wouldn't be the first time. It wouldn't be. But this is what they do. This is what the SVR does. They try to get inside these entities. They try to spy. Uh, They did this in this massive solar winds breach last year. They got inside a nine U.S. government agencies. Uh, they, they did this to the DNC and the RNC back during the 2016 election. In the DNC case, of course, as we know, uh, they released documents. And so it, it, the question now is, where is that line? When do they cross it uh, and in, in a way that demands a U.S. response? In the summit with Vladimir Putin back in, in Geneva in, in June, um, the president, Joe Biden, said that the line is critical infrastructure. Um, and so he said that they, they will essentially give the Russians six to 12 months to see if those attacks on critical infrastructure 
um, stop. Um, so, but now we're seeing these mounting attacks, mm-hmm. both from criminals and uh, government hackers, which is putting a lot of pressure on the, the Biden administration to come up with some sort of response to get these, these attacks to stop. Right. It's a big test. And it also raises the question whether the targets outside of that list, list of 16 infrastructure um, places makes them more vulnerable. Since they're not on the list, could the Russians just say, well, it, this isn't what you said to us was the most important thing? All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Appreciate it. And whether Russia is directly to blame or not, President Biden is facing increasing pressure, as we just talked about, to stop these cyber attacks. He took up the issue at the White House today. And as CNN's Phil Maddenly reports, these new attacks come less than a month after Biden warned Russian President Vladimir Putin there would be consequences. President Biden facing a persistent challenge now with significantly higher stakes. What's your message message? on cyber? At what point does the United States respond? But as a new set of cyber attacks ripple through the U.S., a message alone would fall far short of what Biden has pledged. The president is meeting with his national security team, members of them this morning, to get an update on cyber, on ransomware, uh, and we'll see where we go from there. But he reserves the right to take action. Biden convening his top intelligence and national security officials Wednesday morning in the Situation Room. The focus? Ransomware attacks, like those launched from Russian-based criminal syndicates over the last several months, including the largest on record just this past weekend. A critical issue Biden sought to set clear red lines against in his one-on-one meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin last month. Even if it's a criminal actor, even if it's someone that's not the federal government, even if it's a bad guy or bad gal in Russia, you have a responsibility there and you have a responsibility to take action. And if you don't take action, we reserve the right to. But the attack potentially providing an early and ominous answer to Biden's own open question after the summit. Are they going to act? We'll find out. Coming as top experts in both governments recently met on the issue, according to White House officials. And agreed upon dialogue from the Geneva summit and set to meet again next week. Just a few months ago, the massive solar winds hack by a Russian intelligence unit led Biden to slap sanctions on the country as a result. But the latest attacks, even in the wake of those sanctions and the Geneva summit, laying bare the stakes for Biden's next move, as his red lines from just last month continue to echo. I pointed out to him we have significant cyber capability. And he knows it. He doesn't know exactly what it is, but it's significant. And if, in fact, they violate these basic norms, we will respond. Cyber. He knows. And, Pamela, to this point, it's important to note the administration has not attributed either attack to Russia, either ransomware, uh, criminal syndicates, or state actors. But if they do, when they do, a significant decision will come across the president's desk. Obviously, sanctions have been deployed in the past, but the president put cyber action on the table in that meeting with President Putin. It's an issue that has been rife with disagreement, administration after administration after administration, in terms of how to do it, what the scale and scope should be in response to any attack. If Biden chooses that pathway. It will open a lot lot of interesting doors, a lot of interesting questions. It is a significant decision he will have to make in the days and weeks ahead, Pamela. And I imagine just from talking to officials in the administration, this was a test Biden expected to face after the summit. No one thought Russia would actually stop um, harboring criminals who, who were launching these attacks. All right. Thank you so much, Phil. Appreciate it. 
And I want to bring in our panel now to further discuss this. David Sanger, let's start with you. You wrote today in the New York Times that early indications show Russia's SVR intelligence agency may be responsible for the hacks on this RNC vendor. What is the significance of that? Well, there are two types of attacks underway, as you heard from Alex uh, before and, and from Phil. And so there's the state-sponsored attacks like those run by the SVR, which is one of the spin-offs of the old Soviet KGB. And it is primarily an intelligence gathering uh, operation. And to some degree, that's less upsetting to the administration because uh, states spy on each other. We spy on them. They spy on us. And so that's less likely to be punished except for the fact that the uh, RNC, of course, is a political target. And there were a lot of warnings after the DNC hack uh, four years, five years ago now. Um, The ransomware is largely private criminal groups, although, as Alex suggested, it's hard to know where those stop and where the state steps in. Sometimes they use the same hackers. And in that case, the president's concern is that this gets to the heart of economic disruption in the United States, as you saw with Colonial Pipeline and with the the meatpacking company. And that's really where the focus of the administration's attention is. Just to follow up on that, to to help us understand, so Biden handed over the list of 16 critical infrastructure items to Putin. Where do these attacks fall on that list? Well, the list is a pretty vague one, and you can look at it yourself. It was published by the Department of Homeland Security several years ago, uh, actually uh, during the Trump administration, and it's categories. So you might well argue that getting into the supply chain of uh, software that goes into uh, the connections of the Internet, which is essentially uh, what makes this new ransomware attack different and why 800 to 1,500 companies have been hit, you could argue that that's the same as getting into, say, the electric grid or the water distribution grid Mm. or the oil distribution grid, because we're living off of the internet. But it's not a highly specific list, so it's going to leave some room for interpretation, Pam. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's on the DHS website, as you noted. Sean Henry, you work in cybersecurity. Third-party vendors were also the case in this other ransomware attack on a series of IT companies that serviced hundreds of businesses. Why are contractors an ideal target for hackers? Well, I think our adversaries are looking for any access they can get to any number of potential targets. And uh, the, the breadth and depth of these of these types of attacks is what's important to them. I, I think to, to go back to something David said, though, it's very, very important. There can't be room for interpretation. These It needs to be very clear what's acceptable and what's not. And there needs to be a, a clear deterrence. And that only happens when the guidelines have been laid out very, very specifically, Pamela. Okay, and really quick follow-up to you, and Abby, I promise I'll get to you next. But the White House is still saying that it it can't attribute these attacks. Um, It's not ready to do so. Sean, I'm wondering what you think of that, and do you think that this could be a way for them to buy buy time to figure out how they're going to respond? Well, if they are going to respond and they're going to respond in kind, they want to make sure they have very clear attribution. You don't want to lobby accusations unless you've got clear evidence. They may be looking at logs or intercepted communications to make that determination. But attribution is difficult to do. It's very, very important, specifically if there is going to be some type of of retaliation, Pamela. 
And Abby, to you, today the White House press secretary told CNN President Biden warned Putin there would be consequences for cyber attacks on his watch. Let's listen to what she said. Even if it's a criminal actor, uh, even if it's someone that's not the federal government, even if it's a bad guy or bad gal in Russia, you have a responsibility there and you have a responsibility to take action. And if you don't take action, we reserve the right to. So obviously what has been done so far with warnings, with sanctions, that has not deterred these hackers. So the question is, what did Biden's meeting with Putin actually accomplish? Yeah, and as you pointed out, I don't know that many people in the administration thought that Putin would just throw his hands up in the air and say, oh, we'll stop. Uh, I think the idea here was to uh, try to articulate that there were lines that that needed to be drawn and and just give uh, Russia basically fair warning that it if these attacks don't stop, which they likely won't, uh, that the United States reserves the right to act uh, to act in retaliation. And so it, it kind of just clears the air here, uh, letting everyone know what the terms are. I think there is also some time involved here. Uh, Joe Biden, at the end of that summit, sort of indicated that there was this sort of six month or maybe a little bit longer period uh, to wait and see uh, how the the sort of pace of these attacks went. And so I think we're well within that. Uh, and it, and uh, it's possible that maybe we might see them wane. I, I think no one, though, expects that they will end. It's just a matter of time. When will the United States act and how will they act in retaliation to stop it? Just really quickly on that, given the fact that Biden put a stake in the ground with Putin on this, if if these ransomware attacks, these cyber attacks continue, which we do expect they will, Will all the political blame fall on Biden? You know, I mean, I think that this is his, um, you know, ball now. He's the guy who's holding uh, the cards and he has to take responsibility for what happens from this point forward. There are obviously no easy answers with this relationship with Russia, but the Biden administration knows that they are responsible and it's not just about uh you know, whether or not he has a good relationship with Putin or not, there are economic concerns here. So it has to stop. He is responsible. And I think the White House is aware of that. Okay. Thank you so much. Abby Phillips, Sean Henry, and David Sanger. Great to see you all. And up next, an accused insurrectionist, a second civil war, and a Bible study. We're going to break down new disturbing details found in court documents. Plus, thousands hit the streets protesting the horrific killing of a gay man. Now a breakthrough in the case that's just ahead. And our politics lead, the FBI infiltrated a, quote, Bible study. The leader, a man named Fee Duong, who was at the January 6th Capitol attack and also goes by the nickname Monkey King. Court documents reveal Duong's group planned to build makeshift bombs, discuss succession from the U.S. as part of a possible second American civil war. CNN's Tom Foreman has more. Hot in the middle of the Capitol attack, there he was, according to the FBI, with a mask and big ideas. Fi Duong, officials say, was part of a Bible study group in Virginia, which talked about making Molotov cocktails, combat training for an unspecified future attack, and even secession. And I think it just does show uh, that many of the uh, terrorists and insurrectionists of January 6th left January 6th believing that it was a victory. According to court records, undercover officers first encountered Duong during the riot. Then the FBI infiltrated his 
Bible group at a private home in February. Those records say Duong met undercover agents outside a former prison to discuss testing some bombs there, that he had an AK-47 and five boxes of bomb-building material, and that he said he wrote a manifesto because if I get into a gunfight with the feds and I don't make it, I want to be able to transfer as much wisdom to my son as possible. Authorities say the so-called Bible group also discussed surveilling the Capitol amid heightened security to find possible weak points. That's particularly alarming for police officers calling for better defenses around the Capitol. I would hope that they would be taking these threats seriously and paying attention. Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. Amen. Concerns about conspiracy theories and radical right activism taking root in church communities have grown sharply in the past year. It's easier for Christians who already have that belief system to make that jump over into believing that worldview. And these latest developments can only deepen worries about such rogue factions. I think there's probably more of that than we'd like to think around the country. Where are these radicalized individuals and how far are they down this path to radicalization that ultimately ends in violence? It's a very, very concerning subject. Duong has so far been charged only in connection with the insurrection on January 6th, and he's not entered a plea. CNN has reached out to him for comment on these latest reports, nothing yet, and his attorney has declined to comment too. But law enforcement analysts say it is clear the attack that started on that day for some people is not over. Pam? All right, thanks so much, Tom Foreman. And as the FBI continues its massive investigation into the January 6th insurrection, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is getting closer to deciding which GOP lawmakers he'll pick to look into the attack as well. Joining me now is CNN's new Capitol Hill reporter, Melanie Zanona. Melanie, great to see you. Thanks for having so me. So what are some new details that you can provide us about who McCarthy may put on this committee? Well, what I'm hearing from my sources is that Kevin McCarthy wants to appoint a mix of members. He does want some Trump acolytes who can launch a vigorous defense of the former president. People like Jim Jordan, Elise Stefanik, um, Mike Johnson of Louisiana. These are members who played a big role defending the president, the former president, in the first impeachment. But he also wants to appoint some pragmatic members who are more serious, that can have sway with middle America, that can bring some credibility and expertise to the debate. So I'm told specifically he's looking at members who already sit on relevant committees, members who have backgrounds in law enforcement, in national security members. Um, But two things to keep in mind here is that one, Speaker Pelosi does have veto power over Mm -hmm. any of his picks. And number two, not a lot of Republicans actually are eager to fulfill this assignment. So for McCarthy, the challenge is not just finding the right person for the job, but also finding someone who wants to do it. What is his political calculation here? Why is he doing this? Because early on, there was the question of whether he would put people forward. And how long do you expect this to go on for? Right. You're absolutely right. There was a debate in the conference about whether to boycott it, to try to make it partisan. But once Speaker Nancy Pelosi appointed Liz Cheney, a Republican, to her side of the committee, it made it much more difficult for Republicans to do the boycott strategy. So they want members there, Republicans, to be able to push back try to shape the counter narrative and really play defense for Donald Trump. Uh, As far as timing, though, this committee has no end date. Uh, This could very well drag into next year, which is an election year. And by the way, I would point out the independent bipartisan commission that the Senate GOP blocked would have required the panel to wrap up its work by the end of the year. So you have to wonder if some Republicans uh, are going to end up regretting voting against that commission. That was a big sticking point, I remember, for Republicans at the time. Mm -hmm. 
I want to talk about what's going on in the Capitol building. You know, in the months after January 6th, the Capitol grounds looked completely different. I mean, extensive security, fencing, National Guard troops. What do you know about plans to pare that down? Well, we are hearing that the fencing that is around the Capitol right now could start to come down as early as tomorrow. It could take two or three days, depending on the weather. Uh, And the United States Capitol Police made this decision on a number of factors. Number one, the current threat environment. And number two, some of the changes and enhancements that they've made to their own response teams. But bottom line, this is a huge, important, symbolic move for the Capitol Hill community and the nation, which is still healing from the January 6th insurrection. Very much so. The reporters that were covering it that Mm -hmm. day on Capitol Hill, the the officers who were there and beyond. Thank you so much. Thank you. Melanie Zanona, appreciate it. And coming up, 10 more bodies found in the rubble of the collapsed condo building. The devastation causing one official to get emotional. That's next. Turning to our national lead now, the number of victims at the Surfside condo collapse is quickly escalating. Overnight, crews found 10 more victims, bringing the death toll to 46, with 94 people still missing. Let's bring in CNN's Rosa Flores. Rosa, this is incredibly emotional for everyone there on the scene. What are you hearing? You know, Pamela, I just got off the phone with one of the captains that's on scene, and he tells me that at any point in time, there is no dry eye on this mound. Just think about it. These brave men and women train to pull people who are living from under the rubble. They haven't been able to pull somebody alive from this rubble since the collapse happened on June 24th. He says that hearts are heavy, but they haven't lost hope. They continue working around the clock. Now, overnight, they pulled 10 bodies from under the rubble, bringing the total number of dead to 46. Now, this is emotional, not just for the rescuers, but also for officials here. Take a listen. Nuestros corazones se rompan por los que están de luto y por los que están esperando. Por favor, continúe envolviendo su amor y sus oraciones. oraciones. Now, Pamela, you heard her speaking there in Spanish. Now imagine having to reiterate this much pain and this much agony in both languages, because this is South Florida. Uh, There's a lot of people here who speak Spanish, so she delivers uh, reports every single day, twice a day, um, to the families, to the people of this community. And she does it in both languages, first in English and then in Spanish. You heard her there in Spanish. That's when she started breaking down. I mean, I just, you know, the emotional toll on all of these officials on the ground as well and these first responders who are having to dig through the rubble day in, day out. And we're actually getting an up-close look at the rubble and all the destruction there. What can you tell us? Yes, so reporters and photojournalists were given access to the site for the first time yesterday. And I can tell you that from walking towards that pile of rubble, I mean, the first thing that that you think about is, is first of all, the respect for the families, uh, because we know that this is the site where uh, the bodies of their loved ones have been pulled from. And then, of course, we look for signs of life, anything that, that, that might have life. And all you see or big chunks of concrete and mangled rebar. As you look a little closer, you start to see people's belongings. Uh, the uh, 
pieces of a couch. Uh, I, I looked below my feet and, and, and I saw what looked like uh, blinds or, or a, a piece of wallpaper that, you know, if, if you saw that and it belonged to your mother's house or your grandmother's house, you would recognize it. Uh, pieces of carpet. Pamela, I couldn't think, I couldn't help but think that the searchers had told me that they were looking for the for carpet and following carpet um, on the mound because they knew that in this particular condo complex, the bedrooms had carpet. And they know that about at 1.30 in the morning when this, when this condo collapsed, most people were probably sleeping. So you see all of these different... Uh, pieces of, of, of the story that we've been, been following for so long, and then the buzz of the machines that keep on working, trying to find people, trying to find survivors under the rubble. Pamela. Rosa Flores, thank you so much. Live for us from Surfside. And now to Tropical Storm Elsa, currently moving up the eastern seaboard after making landfall in Taylor County, Florida, earlier this morning. Right now, millions of people are facing heavy wind and rain that could create flooding and power outages up and down the coast. Let's go straight to CNN meteorologist Tom Sater in the Severe Weather Center. So what are you seeing, Tom? Well, currently the center, Pamela, is 150 miles to the west of Jacksonville, and it's still a tropical storm. It will stay that way till it gets to South Carolina, but that may not be the end of the tidal tropical storm. It will not be the first hurricane to make landfall for the year 2021, but it will go in the record books. It was the earliest we had the fifth storm named. It was the farthest east to ever become a hurricane this early in the season. That's a fingerprint of climate change. Three fatalities in the Caribbean, 15 inches flooding in Jamaica. Again, even more than that in West Central Cuba, rivers overflowing their banks, communities inundated. At 8 p.m., it became a hurricane, but it was only a hurricane for a few hours and then making landfall at 11 a.m. Look at the rainfall amounts. Those were expected to be higher than four to six. And if you get down to areas of Fort Myers and northward, we had easily eight to 10. Puta Gorda picking up 11, even a little bit more than that in some spots uh, north of Port Charlotte. But when you look at this, we've got a tornado watch till 8 p.m. That'll be extended most likely later on. That's a big threat with flash flooding. This is the comma shape here, the classic signature, what you should see. Flash flooding, power outage is still possible, road closures. We don't want any water rescues, but millions more are going to feel the effects of this because the track is now further inland. But I want to take you and show you what happened after 8 p.m. It was well-defined, but then it just collapsed. Great news as dry air and winds try to erode the system for the thousands that live in waterfront properties. They were counting every inch in that surge, but it's not over with just yet. We're going to watch this with warnings all the way up to Sandy Hook, tropical storm warnings, with the track being further inland. I think when it gets up near New York City, Pamela, it could be a tropical storm for New York City and Boston as we get toward the end of Friday. So something we still need to watch for the entire East Coast. And we'll certainly be checking in with you then for sure. Meteorologist Tom Sater, thanks so much. Well, hours after two federal agents and one Chicago police officer are shot, a major meeting about the violence on an airport tarmac. That's next. Plus, a man brutally beaten to death in a suspected homophobic attack. It's sparking massive protests ahead. In the national lead, a notable moment on the tarmac as President Biden arrived in Chicago today. He met with the Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, about the city's recent spike in violence, including an overnight shooting of two ATF agents and a Chicago police officer. I want to bring in CNN's Adrian Broaddus live in Chicago. So, Adrian, what do we know about the meeting between the president and the mayor? 
Well, Pamela, we know Chicago's Mayor Lori Lightfoot and President Biden spent several minutes talking on the tarmac. The mayor spoke to the president about gun violence here in Chicago. And the president re-emphasized his commitment to working with the mayor as well as city leaders. Uh, president Biden also told her that in a few weeks there would be more information about the strike force, which was announced just a few weeks ago. And uh, that strike force will be working with uh, areas here in Chicago. This all comes just hours after two ATF agents, one of them female, and a Chicago police officer were shot this morning. Now, all three are expected to survive. We know the Chicago police officer, a bullet grazed the back of his head. That officer with the Chicago Police Department is the 36th officer from the department to be shot or shot at this year alone. The superintendent with the Chicago Police Department tells us the three were all traveling in the same vehicle. They were trying to get on the interstate when someone or a group of people, it's unclear, shot them. They were in an unmarked vehicle and they were working undercover. Pamela? And, and just to be clear, have there been any arrests related to this? We just learned in the last hour or so that investigators do have a person of interest in custody. We don't know a lot about this person of interest, whether or not this person is known to police. We don't know if investigators are looking for someone else, but we do know that a person of interest is in custody after two ATF agents were shot this morning and a Chicago police officer. We know all three are expected to survive. The bullet grazed the back of that police officer's head. One of the ATF agents was shot in the hand and the other near the torso. Okay. Adrian brought us. Thanks so much. Well, a shocking presidential assassination in the middle of the night. Up next, fears Haiti could soon, quote, plunge into chaos. In our world lead, an assassination in the dead of night. Haitian President Jovenel Moise found dead at his home in Haiti's capital. The acting prime minister says the group responsible was, quote, highly trained and heavily armed. He declared a state of siege and warned Haitians not to plunge into violence. Moise was backed by the U.S. and the U.N., but repeatedly failed to hold local and national elections. President Biden reacted to the news at the White House this morning. We need a lot more information, but it's, it's just it's very worrisome about the state of Haiti. Moise was criticized for clinging to power as protests spread to violence through the country, throughout the country over this past year. We are covering this from Washington to Haiti's neighbor, the Dominican Republic. Kylie Atwood is at the State Department. But let's start with Jessica Hasboot in Santo Domingo. She is right outside the Haitian embassy. Jessica, usually we'd see massive protests after an event like this. Why aren't there any this time? That's right, Pamela. That's what we are used to seeing from Haiti during turmoil. We're talking about a nation that's been under a crisis for for quite a, a, a long time. And right now, what we believe is that people are in a state of shock. 
unexpected. The assassination of President Moyes happened at around 1 o'clock in the morning, according to Prime Minister Claude Joseph. Very unexpected. First Lady uh, was fatally injured or, or, or injured and is being transported uh, to Miami to receive treatment. And right outside this embassy here in Santo Domingo, the Haitian embassy, we spoke to the ambassador. As you can see, that flag is that half staff. The shock is still, uh, uh, people are still uh, uh, coming to terms with what happened uh, at the beginning of the, the, the morning hours, the wee hours of Wednesday. The ambassador, uh, Smith Agustin, spoke about how this was a barbaric act that violated the democracy of that state and they're expecting justice and in the coming hours more information on the ongoing investigation to the assassination of President Jovenel Moise. So Kylie, what is the Haitian ambassador to the U.S. saying? Well, he told reporters earlier uh, this morning here in Washington that those who carried out these attacks could be in Haiti still. They don't know where they are. They are on the loose right now. He also said that according to video footage of this actual attack, of the scene, the attackers were speaking Spanish and they were presenting themselves as DEA agents. That's the Drug Enforcement Agency, sorry, administration here in the United States. Now, he said he believed they're fake DEA agents. State Department spokesperson said that that is absolutely false. They are not from the DEA. He also uh, reiterated that the Biden administration condemns this heinous act and that the State Department has been in regular contact with Haitian authorities uh, throughout the morning. Secretary of State Tony Blinken has been briefed on this. He will also be in contact with those folks. Uh, but we should also note that the State Department says that it remains ready for any request from Haiti for additional assistance. And that's really what we're waiting to see here, Pam. What kind of assistance do Haitian authorities uh, need from the United States? We should note that they have shut down their airport, of course, uh, trying to close down any possible way for these attackers to get out of the country. There are other ways for them to, but the airport would be one way. And that is also making it challenging for U.S. officials to get into the country. But there are folks at the embassy there who have been regular contact with the State Department, updating them. This is a very fluid situation. Okay. Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Jessica Hasboon in Santo Domingo. Thank you. And next hour, the Haitian ambassador to the U.S. will join CNN. And now to Spain, as huge protests erupt there with hundreds waving pride flags and chanting justice for Samuel after a gay man was beaten to death outside a club over the weekend. Friends and family say the 24-year-old was deliberately targeted for being gay and they want justice, as CNN's Isa Suarez reports. The calls for justice keep getting louder. From Madrid to Barcelona and beyond, Spaniards are enraged. This country still does not really accept that there are many ways to love and different ways to love. The death of Samuel Luis Muñez has gripped the country. The 24-year-old nursing assistant was killed in the city of A Coruña in northern Spain. He was brutally beaten outside a nightclub in the early hours of Saturday morning and later died in hospital. A witness who claimed to be his friend was asked by Spanish media if this was a homophobic crime. His family are devastated. My son was a caring and loving man, a friend to his friends, 
A friend to I his mean, parents. This was bad. Two men and a woman are under arrest in connection with the attack, according to a government representative. And police have, quote, not ruled out further arrests. While the investigation continues, Spaniards who have taken to the streets in their thousands seem to have made up their minds. I think this crime happened because homophobia kills. The Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez called the killing a savage and ruthless act, tweeting, we won't take even one step back in rights and liberties. Spain will not tolerate this. The attack has sparked fear in Spain's LGBTQI community just days after annual Pride celebrations in the capital. But one activist tells CNN he's inspired by the national reaction. We're, we're so worried, but uh, this provoked um, a very high reaction in the old people of Spain, not only LGBT, but also the, the general population. No, and when this happens, uh, it lets us fight against impunity, but also to prevent future uh, future violence. Last week, the Spanish government approved a draft bill to protect the rights of LGBTI people. But for many, Muñoz's killing has shaken their sense of safety on Spanish streets. And Pamela, I've been speaking to LGBTQI uh, groups throughout Spain uh, who tell me they've been incredibly moved by the thousands of people we've shown you there pouring on the, through the streets, really in a show of force and love, calling for justice for Samuel uh, and really wanting to see change happen. Now, they tell me why this is wonderful, these scenes coming out in the street in support of Samuel. They tell me they are worried, Pamela. They tell me they've been seeing a rise in, in, in hate crimes related to sexual orientation, but also gender identity. And these attacks, more shockingly, are taking place place in broad daylight and in front of witnesses. And when I asked them why is Pride ne is still needed, they say this is the reason. Pamela? Mm. So brazen and just, just awful and concerning. Isa, thank you for bringing that story to us. Well, the more contagious and more severe Delta variant now accounts for more than half of COVID cases in the U.S. That story ahead. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.